So, with this morning's message, my title is, It is Written. Today we're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. And last week, Pastor Jake was preaching on the baptism. When Jesus was baptized, he came out of the water and the Spirit came and descended on him like a dove. And then there was a voice, an audible voice that said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. I loved how Pastor Jake brought up that before Christ had done anything, before he even entered his ministry, that was God's commendation of him. He already was affirming his work. And I think that should be an encouragement to us because our faith is what makes us righteous before God. Our faith is what justifies us. And then we walk out in that faith and perform the work that he planned for us long ago. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Now, if we pick up the story in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, we'll just read through it so we can kind of get a full picture of everything that happens here. The temptation of Jesus. And I'm reading out of the ESV, so if you want to pull up your phone, pull up the ESV version, and if you want to follow along as well. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and... On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Without a doubt, temptation is the biggest problem we face as believers. Get rid of temptation, you get rid of sin. We are to be a people who follow God's ways, who follow his laws, into holiness, into purity, into righteousness. And it is Satan that uses the desires and the temptations and the lusts of this world to lure us into sin. I heard a story this week about a man who learned a lesson from a dog. He said the owner, in trying to train the dog, would put a piece of food on the ground and say, don't eat it. The dog would go eat it and he'd smack him. He'd put out another piece of food and he'd say, don't eat it. Dog would walk over and he'd eat it again and he'd smack him again. And this continued until finally the dog caught on and he said, if I eat the food, I'm going to get hit. So the dog learned to avoid the temptation. But it's interesting that he noted the way the dog avoided the temptation was to not look at the food. Instead, he stared intently into the master's face. When people are training dogs, that is the key to success getting the dog to make eye contact. 
And it's interesting, I read this on a website this week, it says, if you can get your dog to focus on you instead of everything else going on around him, it will be easier to communicate with him and teach him. Not to mention getting him to ignore that taunting squirrel or the mailman. But in addition, that look is also helping to build your relationship with your dog. And I just feel like that's such a good spiritual lesson that we can learn as we gaze intently into Christ's face is where we gain victory over temptation. It's not looking at the things of this world, looking at the way that Satan lures us into sin. It's focusing on Christ. And that's exactly what we want to do this morning. And the reason we want to do that is because Hebrews 2, 4 verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And Hebrews 2 verse 18 says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So Christ is our example. We look to him, and this story shows us how Jesus overcame temptation. But I want to say something before we start as well. The verse, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13, I can't tell you how many times I've heard this verse at a testimony night where people are sharing their testimonies, and this is their key verse. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now I want you to think about that for a second. Because after Christ, after Christ in your heart, there's not a temptation that you have faced that you did not have the power to overcome. Did you get that? Right now, if you have the Holy Spirit in your life, there's no temptation that you have to obey. You have the power in yourself. Lowell talked about that. Pastor Lowell, we have the power in us, that power. No temptation has seized you that is beyond what you can be, what, beyond what you can bear. And all of that is, is available to us. All of that is there for us as we accept Christ, as we accept His offering and the Holy Spirit enters our life. And therefore, we have that power and we can overcome that temptation. And we want to look at Jesus. He is our perfect example. John MacArthur says that the Christian life is nothing more than practicing the conscious presence of Jesus Christ. Never taking our eyes off of Him. It's a constant awareness that He is there watching Let us find hope, let us find that excitement and a way of getting out of the temptation as we look at this passage, this amazing passage of Scripture. In all reality, it's, it's the greatest battle of good versus evil. You have ultimate good versus ultimate evil. There's nothing like it. There's no comparison I could make. I was trying to think of some superhero battle royale that I could maybe compare it with, but there's just nothing that compares, you know? Like, it just... But it's so different than, than the battles that we see in our day and age. It's so different. This is a battle of worship. This is a battle of service. Verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And again, you'll remember that Jesus had just come up. He had just been baptized. He had just received the Holy Spirit. And, and the Father said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And immediately... He is driven. Mark says the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. 
He was compelled to go. He was urged to go. He was prompted to go. This was a divine appointment set up by God. And we're going to get into temptation and what it means for us, but Satan or Jesus went into that battle on offense. He was not on defense. I believe, as I kind of was reading this week and reading what some different people think, but I agree with a lot of people say, this appointment was set up so that Christ would immediately, before his ministry even began, he would defeat Christ, or Satan rather. Immediately, before his ministry even began, he shows up. This is not like like a movie hero that we watch where at the end you have the victory. No, this is before the movie even starts, there's victory. Isn't that amazing? So God gives Jesus that victory. But it's so interesting too that isn't it when we're on the mountaintop? Isn't it when we're at our highest? Oh, here's my good and faithful servant with whom I'm well pleased. Jesus is up there. He's excited. He's on the mountaintop. And that's where Satan is just sitting there firing darts. Isn't that the same way with us too when we're on the mountaintop? And I read this week that a nation is never, never in as much trouble as when they think they don't need to protect themselves. When they're at peace, when they think they're in safety, that is when they are most vulnerable. And that is exactly when Satan attacks us. And we come crashing to the ground wondering what went wrong. Our focus was off. We took our eyes off of Christ. We forgot about Satan and we thought we had it all together and we started focusing on our own ability. And that is why the scripture says, let anyone thinks he stands, take heed lest he what? Fall. First John verses three, verse, chapter 3, verse 8 says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. It's interesting, as Jesus went into the wilderness, why did he go there? What drove him there? What was the purpose? And why... We do see this as a pattern in Scripture from other, from other leaders. You see them going into the wilderness. You see Moses going up on the mountain. You see Elijah you know, in the wilderness. You see these people. And it's almost like a dedication to God. It's like Paul, even before he started in his ministry, he went and he was, he was out for three years and he was being trained. And it's almost like this way of consecrating yourself, devoting yourself to God, trusting in God before you jump into your ministry. And it's amazing. I think that's exactly what Jesus was doing. He was trusting himself to God and and spending that time with the Father in prayer before he would go into ministry, before he would serve. But he was there to be tempted by the devil. And it's an interesting word, that word tempt. In the Greek, it's perazo. And the definition of that word is to try, to make a trial of, to test, for the purpose of ascertaining his quantity or what he thinks or how he will behave himself. So the word in its sense is neutral, and yet it can be used in a negative and a positive sense. So it's not right necessarily when you see the word tempt in your Bibles. We always think of it in a negative sense. Tempt is always negative. But I don't think that's the case. And as we look at this scripture, we'll see that. Because there is a negative sense. Satan Satan has an agenda in temptation, and that is to cause us to sin. But God has another agenda in temptation, and that's to prove that you're faithful. That's to prove that you're righteous. 
And this is illustrated nowhere better than in the story of Job. And I, if you want to turn there, Job chapter 1, I, I really want you guys to see this because it gives us a picture of how Satan operates, and I think it really helps us to, to look at this in a, in a whole different way. But Job 1, starting at verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it. You think he knows what's going on? And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Do you think God had any question in his mind? about Job's response? I don't. God wasn't sitting there going, oh, I kind of have to let him go there, but I don't know what's going to happen. No, God knows our hearts. He knows what you're going to do in the moment of temptation. And when he allows that temptation to come into your life, he already knows you have the power to withstand it. He knows that. Satan obviously wants us to sin, but Christ wants us to have victory, to prove to the world, to prove to those around us, to prove to Satan that we will not just wander away at the first sign of trouble. Let's not begrudge those times of trial and testing. It's so easy to hate all that stuff that comes along in our lives. But James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let's allow those temptations to shape and mold us as we prove the faith that is in our lives. Verse 2 says, And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. So during this time in the wilderness, Jesus was fasting the whole time, 40 days and 40 nights. Scripture doesn't tell us why, but I find it interesting. Moses fasted for 40 days and 40 nights on the mountain before he brought the Old Covenant to the Israelites. And now Jesus is fasting 40 days and 40 nights before bringing the New Covenant. I just find that an interesting parallel and interesting. I think God uses symbolism a lot. And I just find that very interesting, those two contrasts. But it was a way for Jesus to consecrate his ministry to God, as we've kind of already mentioned but in the, in the Gospel of Luke, he says that when the 40 days were ended, he became hungry. So there seems to be some sort of spiritual nourishment that Christ is receiving for the first 40 days where he doesn't feel hunger. But now all of a sudden, after day 40, he is just full on 40 days worth of hunger kind of thrown on right at the end. And so God was sustaining him. There was some sort of communion and some sort of supernatural way that Christ wasn't hungry, but he was just filled with the Spirit. He was filled in the presence of God, and he was being nourished that way. But after that, the hunger came, and this is exactly when Satan comes. Verse 3, And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. 
We don't really know what happened for the first 40 days. Some commentators believe that that Satan actually shows up at this point. For the first 40 days, he's just playing mind games with, with Jesus, trying to get him to sin like he does with us. But now he is in body. He is in the flesh. They are there having a conversation. They are speaking to one another. And it's at this point that he tries to to really throw everything he can at Jesus because he realizes that his time is short and he literally throws the biggest tools that he has in his box at Jesus. But notice his tactic. If you are the Son of God, he's right away casting doubt. And I don't, I don't doubt for a second. Jesus, Satan knew exactly who Jesus was. You don't think he heard that audible voice that said, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased? Of course he heard that. He knew it. We know from the other texts in the Bible that demons had said, we know that you're the Son of God. There was no doubt. Satan wasn't, he, he knew that Jesus actually was the Son of God. It's almost like he's, he's casting doubt in the form of trusting God. If you are the Son of God, then why don't you say to these loaves, here you are, Son of God, and you haven't eaten in 40 days, and God's not taking care of you. God's not providing for you. If you are the Son of God, why don't you just turn these loaves into bread? Because obviously God doesn't care. I mean, He walked through the wilderness with the Israelites for 40 years providing their needs, and here you are the Son of God, and He can't even give you a loaf of bread? Since God isn't providing for you, why don't you just do it yourself? I was going to use the illustration of Abraham later, but it really correlates to all of them. It's, it's the prime example of God giving a promise to Abraham, you will bear a son, and you just didn't have the patience to wait, and you go and you make the promise happen in your own way, in your own time. And we see the repercussions of that was countless years of war and fighting. Surely God would want you to eat and not starve. I mean, you're the son of God, right? But he answered, verse 4, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus responds with God's word. In fact, all three of Jesus' responses are not his own, but God's words. He knew God's words, and he lived by it. And those words are the key to victory over temptation. If we don't know God's word, then we won't even really know where we're being tempted. And it is interesting, Scripture says that knowing the law is what produces the desire to disobey the law. So once we know the law, now we can be tempted because we know what's right. From Satan's perspective, why would you suffer hunger when it's within your power to miraculously produce food? Why would you do that? That doesn't make sense. But the truth that Jesus understood is that there's more to life than food. Life is not merely about satisfying our desires and our appetites. It's far more important to be sustained and trained in godliness than it is our physical bodies. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8 says, Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Spiritual training is far more important The point is, it doesn't matter how much food you eat. If God wants you to die, you'll die. And it doesn't matter for your lack of food. If God wants to sustain you, he will. Food isn't the issue. God is in control. 
Our obedience to God's word is what matters. Besides, what kind of example would Christ be to us if he made his own food? Here he is being tempted in every way as we are, and yet here in the back he's making a Big Mac because he's hungry and he can miraculously do it. No, he didn't do that. He put himself and subjected himself to a human nature that couldn't do that. And he did that for our benefit so that he could encourage us, so that he could help us when we're tempted. He trusted the promise that said, My God shall supply all your needs. Jesus didn't need to take anything to his own hands, but he could safely rest his life in God's. Verses 5 and 6, the devil's not done, he's persistent. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And now we see Satan's tactic has switched to using Scripture. The problem is that when Satan uses Scripture, he always twists it, takes it out of context, or misinterprets it so that people are misled. And I really do see a comparison here to the prosperity gospel that we see in our day and age. It's like, jump off! You know, God will protect you. He doesn't want any harm to come to you. God just wants you to be happy and healthy and wealthy and wise. And he's going to bless you with every good thing. And you don't need to walk in obedience. Uh, God did away with the Old Testament commands and the Ten Commandments. And it's not about obedience anymore. We're in the age of grace. He'll protect you. But that doesn't allow us to make reckless, foolish decisions with our lives and then look to God and say, oh, you got to get me out of this mess. We don't say to God, okay, next Tuesday, if I don't have a job, then I'm doing this. Or you, you better answer me by tomorrow at 3 o'clock. Or, or I'm asking you to do this thing and show me a sign. That's not how God works. He's under no obligation to give us a sign. He's under no obligation to answer your prayer or do the thing that you're asking. None whatsoever. Other than His promise to answer what we pray according to his will. But there's another interesting thing here. So we went from the wilderness where they were all alone. I mean, there were beasts in the wilderness. He was in a place where there was nobody, okay? The wild animals were living there. And now we go to the temple. So some believe there was like a porch that was on the top of the temple that maybe to the front of the temple was about a 300-foot drop, but on the back it faced a ravine that had about a 12,000-foot drop. So I don't know what side he was on, but I suspect he was on the front because it's interesting in Malachi, it says that your Messiah will suddenly appear. So what do you think would happen if he jumped off the front of the temple, angels grabbed him at the bottom, saw, softly rested him on the ground, and here he is before all these Israelites, all these Jews that are standing there before the temple, that are standing around the temple. What do you think they're thinking? Here's the Messiah! And you didn't have to endure the cross. You didn't have to suffer. You didn't have to do any of that hard stuff. He totally take the easy road. You don't have to do all that hard stuff. Look, here, they're going to accept you. They're going to trust you. Their Messiah has come. And so that's the temptation and the tactic. An interesting thing that I saw or noticed this week in my study, and it's very interesting. I didn't necessarily right away relate that now they were in a place where there was a bunch of people and would have seen him. But Jesus said to him, verse 7, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And just notice how short his responses are. I mean, when we have God's word as our guide, it's so simple, right? 
We don't have to justify. I feel like a lot of times we do that. Here we have this opportunity or this thing that comes up, and so we like look at this verse or that thing, and like we make this big, whole, complicated mess of like how it could work or maybe why it's okay. When at the end of the day, it's just plain as day. It's simple. It's written. It's right there. There's the answer. Jesus continues to find his hope in God's word and doesn't rely on his emotions. He doesn't deny what Satan said. Notice that. He just completes the process of weighing all Scripture, measuring Scripture against Scripture. I had a professor tell me once, he said, you tell me any sin you want to justify, and I could find a verse in the Bible that will justify that verse. So we need to be diligent as people of God to say, you know what, I can't just take one verse and make it my life's mission or justify sin or justify any situation with this one verse. You can't do that. You have to weigh Scripture against Scripture. You have to be faithful. Remember that you're speaking for God when you speak his word. But it's interesting that Satan, in his first temptation, he's getting him to distrust God. Look, God's not providing for you, so do it yourself. Now he switches totally to the opposite way. He says, now totally put your faith in God. Jump off the building and he's going to protect you. But Jesus knew. He knew what he was on this earth to do, and he wasn't going to cut any corners. He wasn't going to take the shortcut or the easy road. He knew that the point was obedience. Verses 8 through 9, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. In Luke's account, he says, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me. And I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Satan is the prince of the power of the air. He has been given authority in this life. And he can delegate that authority. We see that in Scripture in the Old Testament as kings would would be led by Satan to do certain things. But the, again, I think the temptation is to shortcut. We know that Christ was promised the, promised the kingdom. He was promised glory. He was promised that the earth would become a footstool under his feet. He was given all those promises. But now here's another shortcut. Here's another easy road. Worship me, and then I'll give this, the authority of this world to you now. But the problem is we serve what we worship. So by worshiping Satan, he would now be under authority of Satan and would now have had to do whatever he was going to do by the authority of Satan. And how much better, I feel like that's such a good example for us, let go of the pleasures and the desires that come from this life and any authority that you think you might get from this world because it doesn't last. And every Satan, every temptation that Satan throws at Christ doesn't last. It fades away. But all of the promises in God are eternal. And so he was willing to wait Wait for that promise to be fulfilled until it was true, until it was real and everlasting. And it's absolutely astounding to consider the arrogance of of Satan at this point, isn't it? Can you imagine the created being saying to the creator, fall down and worship me? That is the height of pride and arrogance. It is absolutely unbelievable to think that Satan actually believe that. And we see that account in Isaiah. Isaiah kind of gives us a brief picture of what happened. Satan was thrown out of heaven because he thought he was going to be like God. 
He wanted to be like God. He wanted His throne to be above the stars. And that is the reason that He is headed for destruction because of His arrogance and His pride. The things of this life are temporal, and the only thing that Satan can offer us is pleasure during this life, but that's it. Nothing that is of lasting value. What does it profit you if you gain the whole world and yet forfeit your soul? Verse 10 says, Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. Again, Jesus comes back to God's Word, and He is totally unwilling to to compromise at all. The thing is, God doesn't need you to make deals for Him. He doesn't need you to short-circuit any blessings that He's planning to give to you. He doesn't need you to kind of be wise and you know maybe like slipping in something under the table to get the to get the end goal the end doesn't justify the means not with god you know we hear that statement here at work it's like i don't care how you do it just get it done at the end of the day i want that done and it doesn't matter to me what you did to get there that is not how god is it's about obedience through everything, knowing that trials will come, knowing that temptations will come, knowing that it is going to be hard. We're faithful. Satan literally threw everything he could at Jesus and was completely unsuccessful. All temptation falls into three categories, which 1 John chapter 2 tells us are the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and pride of life. And every single one of those temptations fall into that category. We see the temptation to make his own bread is a lust of the flesh. It's a lust to satisfy my desires. It's a lust to to do that when it's not God's will to do it. We see jumping off the temple, it was a a lust of the eyes, the the position that he would get, how he would look in people's eyes. It was a way for him to, to be proud. And then we have a pride in our achievements and possessions. If if Jesus could have been ruler of the whole world, then he would have had pride in, in that. Pay attention to that in your life where Satan is tempting you, where he is showing you those things. They're always one of those things, lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. If you're going to get one of those things out of it, then it's a sin. These are not from the Father. But it's interesting to notice the authority of Jesus at this point as well. Be gone, Satan. And what does he have to do? He has to leave. And it's amazing in that moment also to notice Jesus' patience with Satan to that point. He had that authority the whole time, and yet he endured 40 days of temptation before he said those words to Satan. Again, providing an example for us that we can be faithful in temptation. Worship is meant for God alone, and he is the only one we should serve. Worship has to do with who is Lord over our lives. And that is why the scriptures say that we are to worship God and not divide our worship between the world and God. Because where you're divided about whether here I want to worship God and here I want to worship the world or money, your interests are divided. You're serving two masters and you can't do that. You're going to love one and hate the other or you'll love the other one and hate the other one. There's going to be one master that you like more than the other one. So here, yeah, I love God because he gives me salvation and he gives me eternal life. But I don't like following his word here because it takes some more of my money away. And I like to have more money so I can buy things. We see how quickly our our interests can get divided. And Jesus knew that. 
But then the devil left him, verse 11. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Luke says, after he had ended every temptation, he left him. Jesus had suffered every temptation that we face. And he was victorious. The way to favor with God is not self-satisfaction, self-glorification, or self-promotion. It is in humble obedience to God's command. And this is exactly the opposite of what the world tells us. The world tells us that you need to take care of yourself. You need to get ahead. You need to worry about yourself because no one else is going to worry about you. So you got to take care of yourself. You got to make sure you have all these things in place. You know, don't deny yourself any pleasure. It's okay every once in a while. You know, that's okay. It's not a big deal. Enjoy life. But that is not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is complete surrender, complete sacrifice, complete devotion to God, no matter what. Then the angels come and minister, and what did they do? What did they bring? Bread. Surely they brought bread to satisfy his physical needs. God does take care of his obedient children. Ultimately, Jesus denied himself of all the glory in this life to be given the greater glory that comes from God. We must follow his example, for we are promised that same glory. And as we look at the perfect obedience of Christ, it's so easy to see our own sin, our own failures, our own shortcomings. We are not sinless, and we give in to temptation, and we can be so overwhelmed with the weight of sin and the feelings of guilt. But let's go back to Hebrews 4. 15 through 16, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Proverbs 28, verse 13 says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16 through 18, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And so may that be our focus as we follow God's Word in obedience. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for Christ, his amazing humility that he even was willing to come to this world in human flesh. He humbled himself to the life we live. He humbled himself to the baptism and, and the temptations and the things of this world that we face. And yet it was not without purpose. It was for our salvation. It was so that we could trust in his perfect work on the cross for forgiveness of sins. It was so that we can look to Him when we are being tempted. And we can have victory over those things because we are trusting in God's Word. We are trusting in God's faithfulness to us as we serve Him. And we pray, Lord, that You would strengthen the Holy Spirit in our hearts, 
That we would confidently and boldly know Your Word. We must be spending time in Your Word on a daily basis. How can we wake up in the morning without first casting our eyes to Jesus, our Master, before going into the world and being inundated with temptation and fear and doubt and worry? May we first arise and cast our eyes on Jesus, our Master. Keep our eyes fixed there, and He will guide us through. We ask for that blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.